part of my motivation was letting younger people know that action, decisive action is really possible. And you don't have to be Martin Luther King Jr. And you don't have to be a hero. You just have to work with other people on something you care deeply about um, and keep your eyes on the prize, so to speak. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. My conversation with Laura Kaplan was so intense, informative, alarming, and brought up the question, are we reliving history? There was too much to put into one episode, and so I've broken it into two parts. Here's part one, the 1970s underground feminist abortion service, the Janes, the beginning. Hi, my name is Laura Kaplan. I'm the author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. And I was a member of Jane back in the 1970s, early 1970s, before Roe v. Wade. Welcome to Sylvia and Me. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today on such an important topic. We are reliving history, a history that for younger women and and men don't even realize, we sometimes just accept things. After Roe v. Wade was overturned back in June, people don't understand. We lived when we were fighting for the rights. And you, as you said, were involved in the underground that was called Jane. It was abortion counseling service, and it actually started off as a referral. Can you, you you mentioned that you're the author of uh, Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Why did you feel it necessary to write the book? Um, At the time that I started writing it, we weren't in the dire situation we are now. Uh, but there were already inklings of what was to come, Um, already restrictions being put in place. But more than that, I really felt that um, this group was really an unusual expression of women's liberation um, that was sort of unknown history, that... most people didn't know that this group existed or what we did. We didn't spend a lot of time in our post-Jane years of talking about it. And I also felt that it was very important for somebody who was in the group to write our history for a number of reasons. One is that because what we were doing was so illegal, uh, we didn't keep any records. So in reconstructing who we were, what we did, how we evolved, it would all have to be based on people's memories. And the farther out from our end date we got, the less people were going to remember. 
Um, so, and the reason I thought it needed to be somebody uh, internal to the group, not only because all of these are just our memories, but because I felt like people looking in from the outside would see us in a way that we didn't really want to be seen, would see us as heroes, Amazon warriors, you know, courageous, all these adjectives, which we would never apply to ourselves, nor do I think are useful. Um, because my part of my motivation was letting younger people know that action, decisive action is really possible. And you don't have to be Martin Luther King Jr. And you don't have to be a hero. You just have to work with other people on something you care deeply about um, and keep your eyes on the prize, so to speak. And, um, and that's something that you actually talk about um, in, in your book is the fact that it happens by action. And it happens, you know, social change, it's not a gift given by leaders and heroes, as you say, but it's accomplished by ordinary people working together. And that's one of the things that Jane did. And you both joined back in 1971. Correct. I you, you were a young girl, you were 25. 24. I 24. Okay. I want to go back to actually the, the, the beginning of it. And what got me really was the first paragraph in your book, if I might, uh, starts with the first voice Jenny heard as the anesthetic lifted was the surgeon's the sterilization procedure was a success, and congratulations, you're eight weeks pregnant. And this was a young woman who was going in to have her tubes tied. She had two young children. She was in her late 20s, and she had cancer. And yeah. she had she, Hodgkin's disease. Hodgkin's. And she had gone through an awful experience in her last um birth the baby was fine but she had a fight to get her tubes tied and in the time of fighting because they didn't think a 28 year old could make that kind of uh decision she became pregnant and then had a fight in order to get an abortion there was a chance that going through the pregnancy would kill her right so, and she already but, had two children, right? Two young children. And so her experience was the fact that there were all these men making decisions because there were very few women who you could barely even find a woman gynecologist. Right. So tell us about how Jane kind of evolved into where it was when you started in 1971. Okay. So the group was started by an activist, uh, and I'm going to use her real name because now that the documentary, which is on HBO called The Janes, is out and everyone in it is using their real names, so I feel 
in the book, I use pseudonyms for everyone because yes. at the time that I did the book, there were some people who were really, because of their employment or whatever, yeah. uh, really wanted their identity hidden. <clears throat> so just to be consistent, I just used made up names for everybody. So, but um, I'll use people's real na real names um, in our conversation because so many of those people have now sort of come out and they're in the documentary and they do public speaking. So I know it's okay to do this. And some like Jenny, whose real name was Jody, um, are dead. You know, we're all in our 70s and early 80s, all of us who were in Jane, uh, one or two in their late 60s, but the majority of us are in our 70s. This activist, whose name is Heather Booth, she had been in Freedom Summer in Mississippi. She was an active anti-war activist. She was involved in all kinds of political work. And uh, she tells the story. She came back from Mississippi and she got this phone call from a student about his sister. She was a college student at the University of Chicago at the time who uh, was desperate to find an abortion. And she didn't, she never even thought about abortion. I mean, it was like this was new territory for her. But she started asking around among her civil rights contacts in Chicago and located a black doctor, T.R. Howard, on the south side of Chicago, who ran a clinic called Friendship Clinic. And he regularly performed abortions at his clinic. And so she reached out to him and he was willing to do it. And the woman went and it was all went really well. Um, and then sometime after that, she got a call from another young woman. This one, someone she knew from Mississippi, uh, a young black woman who was desperate for an abortion and didn't think she could find one that wouldn't kill her in Mississippi. So Heather made her calls again and uh, reached out to Dr. Howard and he was willing and the young woman came up to Chicago and got her abortion. And I think those two very different women, one white middle-class college student, the other poor black woman, uh, really got her thinking. Um, and so she, um, this was also at the very, very, very beginnings of the women's liberation movement, what we call the women's movement now. Um, and she was part of the first consciousness raising group in Chicago called the West Side Group. And so she would talk about women's issues and she started talking about abortion as well. And so she became known as the person you contacted if you needed an abortion. And so can I interrupt you for one, sure. one second? Because I want people to understand that <clears throat> back in the day, contraceptives were not uh, given out. They weren't available. And it wasn't until I think it was 1965 that the Supreme Court okayed contraceptives, but for married people. Right. And it wasn't until 72 that then the Supreme Court found a right to contraceptives for unmarried people. 
So, you know, that's just the year before Roe. And then, of course, we have a Supreme Court justice sitting on the court currently who thinks that whole question should be looked at again and possibly overturned. In any case, yeah, getting contraceptives, and it depended where you were. I entered college in 1965, and um, I went to the University of Chicago also. And um, our student health folks were giving out birth control pills like they were candy, I think, in the attempt to keep college students from getting pregnant. Um, so it depended where you lived exactly, and who you knew, what your access was to birth control. Be that as it may, um, regardless of access to birth control, people get pregnant. Yes. Who don't intend on getting pregnant. Exactly. Stuff happens, you know, no method is foolproof as we've all, uh, learned some of us not happily. <laughs> um, in any case, so Heather on her own was doing these referrals. And by 1968, she it was getting to be too much for her. And she also had other organizing interests that she wanted to pursue. And I think she was married and, and, and pregnant with her first child. So she had been speaking at various new left conferences. And they would... Just to give you a, a sense of what things were like back then, there would be one workshop on women's issues. And so Heather would usually lead that workshop and she would have yellow legal pads with various headings, you know, equal pay, childcare, and one was always abortion. So she had these people signing up. And so when she decided this had all gotten too much for her, she went through her lists and called together the women who had signed up um, to turn over this work to a group. And by then she had a very clear political uh, sense of abortion and uh, women's right to control their destinies, their our own destinies uh, that she wanted to imbue this group with, which she did. Um, and then once she felt, and she had also learned a lot about abortion, there was no information. You know, we go into a bookstore now and there's shelves of books on women's health. There was nothing back in the late 60s, early 70s. There was nothing, no information. So um, she learned a lot of about abortion from talking to the women she sent to Dr. Howard and in the times that he was felt threatened um, and closed up his work, then she had to find other people. And she did, she had a list. And so once she had trained the women in this new group, then she um, stepped aside. She handed over her list of doctor contacts and she was gone. And one of the things that the group did, it wasn't just referring people to doctors who would do abortions, but they counseled, they talked to the women. Before and, so did, and so did Heather. I mean, people were terrified. This was all illegal. Uh, you didn't know whose hands you were going to fall into. And the stories, you have to remember that for most of us, what we knew about abortion was that every once in a while, a woman got an abortion and she died from it. 
And we'd yes. all seen the pictures of the crumpled bodies in the alleyways. And this is what sort of common knowledge was. None of us, until women started talking to get together in women's groups, knew how common illegal abortion was. How many women had sought one? How many women had found one? And although they might have not been pleasant experiences, they were still alive and walking around afterwards. And this motivated women's groups all across the country to start these counseling and referral services. So yes, women were counseled to explain what was gonna happen to them, um, what the abortion was, what it would feel like, uh, what they needed to watch out for afterwards. Um, that was sort of the beginnings of the counseling. So then this group took it on from Heather and pretty quickly determined that Sending, as Jody said to me, you know, if you say to somebody, we sent other women to this guy before and they all came back alive, that's not much of a recommendation. No. So she specifically really felt that from her own experience that you explained in the beginning of our talk, from her own experience that for women to have control over abortion, this group had to take control. And so they immediately started looking for one of these doctors who would work closely with them. And Dr. Howard was not the one. He didn't want, he'd never met Heather. He didn't want to meet anybody in this group. No, but they did find another <clears throat> person who was willing to negotiate. And they started out negotiating, you know. Um, illegal abortions were very expensive. $500 could be more than $500. Most women couldn't afford them. And, you know, what I often say to people is you have to remember, so this is in Chicago, that you could find a one-bedroom apartment for about $125 a month. So when you're talking about $500 for- A lot of money. It's a and, lot and of money. As you said, the women who were coming, who needed and wanted an abortion, were from all walks of life. It wasn't the wealthy who could fly to New York or DC. Um, they were from all walks of life. They they were women of color. They were single women. They were young women. They were married women. Um, they were you know, women in abusive relationships. That was hmm. another thing that wasn't known about or discussed back at in the, the time. In, in, not at that time. I mean, yeah. it was the hippie era, it was the, you know, the free era, it was the radical era, but being in an abusive relationship was not something that people thought happened or they yeah. didn't talk about. They might've well, gone through it, and, but uh, they never talked about it. I have to say for those of us in the group, we were equally ignorant. And it was only when the women we counseled would tell us what was going on in their lives. That was a real wake up for us or the 13 year old who shows up with her father for an abortion what's going on there all those things there was no <clears throat> there was no women's movement was the women's movement was just starting so there was no battered women's movement there was no uh sexual assault movement there was no talk of any of this stuff so for those of us who worked with the service, worked with Jane, um, 
in counseling women, we got our little minds blown, shall we say. We had our consciousness raised from the experiences other women were going through. So the initial group, which was about five women, uh, sought to gain control, and they were able to gain control to the point where they were sitting in on the abortions and organizing the work days for this doctor and um, getting the word out so that more and more women were calling us. We, uh, from our doc, and I'm doing this. I, I know. Um, we got an answering machine. Nobody had answering machines. The other piece of this, not only was there no information, there was no technology. So nobody had answering machines. There were no cell phones, none of this stuff. He shows up with a an answering machine that's real to real, the size of a suitcase with beepers. That was our answering <laughs> machine. So women would call our number and they would get a recording saying, this is Jane from Women's Liberation. If you need assistance, leave your name and phone number and I'll call you back. And then one of us posing as Jane would call, you know, we'd say, hi, this is Jane. You called. Why did you call? Meanwhile, so the group itself was getting more control over the abortion process. Um, at some point, I always put this in the passive tense because when I interviewed people, which was about 15 years after we folded, nobody could remember exactly how this went down. But at some point it was revealed to the group that our doctor was not in fact a doctor. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Laura Kaplan. After finding out that he wasn't a real doctor, how did the Janes continue?